I'll never forget what it was like to stand at the Mount of Olives in the courtyard of the Church of Dominus Flavit, which is a, a church that sits on the Mount of Olives overlooking the valley, looking forward toward Jerusalem. When the Gospel of Luke tells the story of Palm Sunday, the, the story that we are, are celebrating and, and walking into this morning, this is the place where Jesus stops, looks up, sees the city, sees the temple, looks over His people, and He weeps. As Jesus begins His journey, His heart breaks, and He, he cries for what is to come. But he's not feeling sorry for himself. He's weeping over the people who had rejected his call to peace, over the the people who had turned away from the good news of God's grace, over the people who have rebelled against what God had for them. Now, throughout his ministry, when Jesus preached a, a message like this, a prophetic message, it was usually a call for God's people to return to being the people that God had created them to be. And more often than not, when he preached those types of messages, he had this city and this temple in mind. And now he stood in this place, looking at the city he loved, Jerusalem and the temple, and he sobbed over what it had become. It's a somber beginning to what we usually label a triumphant entry. But the reality is Holy Week begins with a disruptive parade. And this morning as we celebrate that parade and as we anticipate the week that is coming, I want to invite us to think about how the events of this week continue to shape every area, every nook and cranny of our lives. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you so much for this morning, for this week, for what today means for us. Thank you for bringing us to this place, for the season that we've experienced through Lent and for Holy Week. God, we ask that you'd be with us as we we turn to your scripture, to your story. Give us ears to hear what you have for us. And God, as always, I ask that you would take my words and use them for your glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So as Jesus stands there on the side of the Mount of Olives, weeping over Jerusalem in the distance, we're given a a picture that's very similar to the one that we see when Jesus stands outside the grave of Lazarus and weeps over the death of his close friend. And then, in the middle of the tears, he calls together his disciples, his first followers, his closest friends, and he says, okay, okay, it's time. It's time. Let's, Let's go. He sends two of them ahead to find a donkey and a colt. Now, it was important for Matthew as he writes his gospel to connect the dots for his earliest readers between who Jesus was and who Jesus is and what was written in the Hebrew Scriptures. So he quotes Isaiah and he quotes Zechariah. Throughout Matthew's gospel, he often points to the two identities of Jesus. So so Jesus is the royal king, which is why Matthew starts his gospel with a royal genealogy of who Jesus was and is. So he's the royal king, and he's also the humble Messiah riding into Jerusalem on a lowly donkey instead of a glorified stallion. 
The valley that sits between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem is a valley that, that you can almost carve a path down along the way into the valley before you come up to the walls of Jerusalem. And as they make their way down that path, the parade starts singing. They start singing this with the Psalms. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest of heaven. Now literally translated, Hosanna uh, means save please. Save please. So the people are shouting, save us please, Son of David. They are ascribing that name to Jesus. And as the parade gets closer and closer to the walls of Jerusalem, momentum begins to build. So imagine... You're in the fields or you're on the way home from the market with your family and you see this large crowd in the distance kind of moving together slowly. And as they get closer and closer to you, it gets louder and louder and more people start joining in on that crowd. At the very least, you, you look down from whatever it is that you were doing. And Matthew goes as far as saying that this parade caused the entire city to be in turmoil. People were disrupted. They're saying, what's going on? What's the big deal? It's like what happens here in L.A. whenever a president flies into one of our, our airports. The freeways are closed so we can make the way for, for the motorcade to go through. And everybody else is left saying, what? There's nobody on the, what, what? What's happening? What, what, what's going on? And, and, and where am I supposed to go? Usually when we celebrate this day, when we celebrate Palm Sunday, we stop at the walls of Jerusalem. We stop with the parade at the gates where everyone's interest is peaked. But what happens next as they enter the city is just important to the story of Palm Sunday. So we pick up in Matthew 21, verse 12, and we read this. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Do you hear what's happening? And Jesus said to them, Yes, you have never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies. You have prepared praise for yourself. He left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of my, my favorite weekends of the year, every year took place a couple weeks ago, and it's the opening weekend of the Major League Baseball season. Anybody with me? Any, anybody with Such a good time of year. Your team hasn't lost yet? Such, such a good time of year. I, I always do my best to get down to a game that day, to get to a, a, that weekend, get to a, a baseball game over, over. There's just optimism about the new se se season. Last year... Opening day was on Monday, Thursday, and I was a little busy. But this year, the calendar was so much kinder. 
So a couple weeks ago, I drove down to San Diego for opening day and met up with my friends that I go to every year, to, or every year that I can, uh, to, to see the first game of the Padres season. On Thursday, I saw my first place Padres, still in first place, saw, saw my first place Padres win their first game, hopefully, of, of many. And then on Friday, I went to Dodger Stadium and I witnessed the longest game, longest regular season game, in Dodgers Stadium history. Now, every time I go to Dodger Stadium, I can't help but, but stop at, at a certain statue. And those of you who, who go to Dodger Stadium, you know the statue that I'm talking about. Uh, it's one of the most important players to ever play the game. That's a, a picture of my son Thomas at his first game at Dodger Stadium a little over two, two years ago, sitting next to Jackie Robinson, that statue. I, I always, I can't help but just stop and say, oh. This, this, this man is incredibly important. Now, there's a lot of important players who change the way baseball is played. Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, Hank Aaron. There are plenty. But none of them had an impact on the game like Jackie Robinson did. None of them had the impact on our, our country like Jackie Robinson did. When he ran out to play first base for the Brooklyn Dodgers at Ebbets Field on April 15th, 1947, everyone that was there was paying attention. Not, not even those who were there. Everybody around the country was paying attention because it meant so much more than just the game of baseball. In some ways, it was, it was turning our culture upside down. It wasn't just about baseball. It wasn't just about his talent, about the awards that he won or even the reality that he ended 60 years of segregation in the game of baseball. As he faced adversity and was intentional with his response, he gave hope to all kinds of people. More than anything, he disrupted American culture in all the right ways. And while we've still got a long way to go when it comes to to racism in our country, he was an integral part of beginning to break down some of those barriers. So tomorrow, on the 72nd anniversary of his first start, every Major League Baseball player will be wearing the number 42 in his honor, remembering that he disrupted the status quo. Three days later, we'll be back here, remembering a different type of of disruption with Monday, Thursday, and then Good Friday. Now, our temptation is to, to run from today, from Palm Sunday through to Easter, to jump through the triumphal entry of Palm Sunday to the joy of the resurrection without being disrupted the rest of the week. But I want to invite us to sit in the discomfort of disruption just for a bit. I want to invite us to think about the way that the events of Holy Week disrupt our entire lives. Now, we don't usually talk about uh, Jesus flipping over the tables, uh, the money changers in the temple around Holy Week, but it's important that we do. Entering Jerusalem in the way that he did on the donkey with the crowd shouting Hosanna, laying down their coats and cutting branches off the trees, giving him the red carpet entry of a king. All of that would have been pretty disruptive in itself, especially for the religious leaders of the day. 
But his actions in the temple would have forced them to pay attention in a completely different way. Jesus constantly found himself at odds with the religious elite, with the Pharisees, with the scribes, with the the self-proclaimed experts of the law. He challenged their interpretation of Torah and pushed back against their application of the law. He did all that he could to remind them, them of their responsibility, the responsibility that comes with being Yahweh's chosen people. But the temple wasn't the place where those conversations usually took place. It was the place that most people would gather. They'd, they'd set aside their differences. It's a place that was reserved for sacrifice for the act of, of, of worship. But when he arrives there after the parade, something different happens. And I'm fairly certain he knew what he was going to find. This wasn't his first time going to church. I'm, I'm fairly certain he knew what he was going to find when he went to the temple. He had been there before. And we get the sense that he had, had just reached that, that tipping point. He was tired of a, a cheapened, version of his faith it was the the same tiredness the same sort of exhaustion frustration whatever word you want to give it that drove him to tears as he stood on the side of the mount of olives now we're not completely sure if it was the way in which the the sacrificial doves were being sold at the temple that was making him angry or or if it was the location of where the the sellers had set up they they were in this place within the temple that was reserved for non-Jews who had converted and who were coming to worship and and so they were kind of protecting this place to to kind of keep those who weren't Jewish from entering the temple so we're not sure if it was the fact that there were literal doves being sold or if it's the idea that there's these gatekeepers keeping those who weren't Jewish from, from entering the temple. We, we don't really know. Could have been the hijacking of, of the temple sacrifice or, or this sense of, of kind of ethnocentrism that was keeping people from accessing the temple. Maybe it was both. But it's clear that he, he's disgusted by the whole thing. He's disturbed by the whole thing. And I want to pause for a second, because before we see Jesus' actions in the temple here as a a license to go over after church this morning while we're all eating brunch and start flipping over tables, we we need to think about who it is that's actually the one who's flipping over the tables here. This is Jesus that's flipping over the tables. It's Jesus, the same humble king who entered Jerusalem on a donkey, the same Messiah who had come to save the very people he wept for as he stood on the side of the Mount of Olives. It's dangerous for us to presume that Jesus' actions here give us permission to act out of our our own anger. First, last time I checked, you and I aren't Jesus. We're flawed. And secondly, the reminder here is is more for us as a church and how we function as, as a church than anything else. In his frustration, Jesus quotes the Hebrew Scriptures and cries out, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of robbers. So we need to ask ourselves, what's getting in the way of our church, of our churches, from being houses of prayer? What are the things that pull our attention away from Jesus? How have we allowed the way that we worship to be influenced or hijacked 
to draw our attention away from the one who we claim to gather to worship. Last Sunday, uh, Pastor Daryl preached, and, and one of the, the parables that she spoke on was the, the parable of the prodigal son. And she showed the, the famous Rembrandt painting, the, the, the one of the father bending over and embracing his son, where the older brother, the older son, is kind of lurking in the shadows, looking on at what's going on. When Henry Nouwen writes about that, that painting in the parable, he suggests, he just suggests that sometimes we're like the father. We need to welcome people home. And, and, and sometimes we're like the younger son. We've blown it ourselves and we need to be the one who returns home. And then there's times that we're the older brother, bitter that the prodigal has returned while we've been loyal all along and we have nothing to show for it. Earlier this week, I was reminded by one of our elders that, that in the same book that, that Nowen writes about the prodigal son, he suggests that sometimes our churches are full of older brothers. We're blinded by our loyalty to traditions, to styles of worship, to all kinds of comforts, to entitlement. It's the exact thing that Jesus shows up in the temple to disrupt. The merchants and those who supported them had allowed religion to get in their way of true worship. So Holy Week, one of the weeks that we claim as as Christians to be the most important week in the calendar year, has a way of inviting us to ask ourselves to kind of take inventory of what are our priorities Where do we need to allow Jesus to disrupt our religious life? And at the same time, one of the mistakes we often make is believing that Jesus can and should disrupt one area of our life, the part we reserve for church, but not any other area of our lives. So we trick ourselves into thinking, I I do it all the time. I've got my professional bucket. I've got my family bucket. Got my friend bucket. My hobby bucket. And way over there, this is my bucket for faith. Uh, there was a summer where I was in college where I interned for, for a youth group for a church, kind of like this, the same sort of program that our, our family ministry program has here at WPC. And one of the other interns was from Nevada. And I'll never forget the story that she told about driving home from, from San Diego to, to Las Vegas along the 15 to visit her family. She was going 20 to 25 miles an hour over the speed limit and felt this deep conviction. Oh, I better slow down. I better slow down. So she pulls over, walks to the back of her car, pops off the little Jesus fish that's on the back of her car, throws it to the side of the road, gets back and starts speeding on her way home. Now, it'd be easy to say, no, 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 I'd do something different. But the reality is it might not be driving, or or maybe it is, but we all do the same sort of thing with different areas of our lives. We, We compartmentalize. We say, here's one bucket, here's another bucket. And Holy Week is a week that reminds us that our beliefs need to be a part of our entire identity. All that we do, every sphere we walk in, every bucket. We can't know exactly what went through the mind of the, the non-religious folks in Jerusalem as the, as the Palm Sunday parade moved down the mountain toward the city gates. 
But we do know that, that Jesus' followers called Him Lord. And that would have ticked off a lot of people. Because Lord was a title that was reserved for Caesar. Jesus being given that title would have infuriated Roman authorities. We need to remember that Jesus wasn't crucified for being a good teacher, a nice guy, a good preacher. So much more. He disrupted every area of life. Every area. The things that we consider to be religious, the things that we, we consider to be secular. His first followers believed he'd be the one to come and restore Israel to the glory days. That wasn't just a religious reality. It was a physical kingdom, something beyond what existed when David and Solomon were king. But the kingdom he initiated looked very different than what they expected. And it all started as he, he rode into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. It was a kingdom that transcended every faucet of life from our, our religious practices to our everyday living, from our public life to our personal life, to what we do in private. So as we begin this Holy Week, whether you'll celebrate Easter here or, or, or at another church or somewhere else, I want, you to, I want to invite you to step into the disruption. Allow yourself to be disrupted this week. How does Jesus shape every area of your life? And what might be an area that, that you're kind of holding back? As Jesus stood on the, that mountain, Mount of Olives, before beginning what would surely be the hardest week of his life, before his humiliating death and the triumphant resurrection, he wept over what he saw. His heart broke over a distracted world in need of a beautiful disruption. May we experience that disruption this week. Let's pray. Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Loving God, we ask that you would break into our lives this week. Save us. Disrupt us from the things that keep us from following you. Pray these things in your name. Amen.